Hello and welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of people who study computational neuroscience. I'm Grace. I'm Connor. And I'm Josh. And for this episode, we are talking about brain cooling or freezing, uh, which is something that I think most people might not know is a tool that's used in science and also medically uh, cooling down the brain. It's not the same thing as a brain freeze, which has a different mechanism. Good joke, <laughs> It wasn't a joke, it's true. Jokes can be true. <laughs> um, so yeah, so brain cooling is, is as it sounds, it's like you lower the temperature of the brain or a subset of the brain, and scientifically, it, it can be used in neuroscience experiments just to help people understand how the brain works. And from what I could gather, it had been used, like, since maybe the 70s or something Yeah, there seemed like to be that. some pretty old references for it. Yeah, it felt like there was maybe a gap, like it was used in the 70s, and then it kind of made a resurgence in the 90s, or maybe that's just the literature bias that I saw. Yeah. So we can talk about maybe, like, the history of lesion studies and how cooling of an area is kind of similar to that. So basically, you know... If you wanted to know what the role of a brain area was, you might kind of scoop it out in an animal and then see what the animal can and can't do. Or in a human, there might have been, for some sort of accidental reason, some certain brain region that was damaged or lesioned or had a tumor that was resected or something like this. Yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, it wasn't always obvious even though the brain could be divided up into areas that had distinct functions. So I think, like, isn't it the case that various accidental lesion studies in humans was part of what gave people that idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Didn't have to be the case that, like, there's an area in the brain that's mostly to do with speech or speech or whatever. But so, I guess, I mean, there was sort of a fundamental point about lesions or or cooling experiments that when you you look at some focal region, like, when, when you impair that region or remove that region, you're not necessarily learning what that region does. There was a subtle point made in one of these papers. Yeah, the point was, I thought, was well made. And I kind of feel like isn't always appreciated, like, at least not explicitly. Just, yeah, in that paper they phrase, well, sort of what you can expect to learn from inactivation or lesion studies. And their point was basically, when you lesion or inactivate a brain area, what you're really studying is how well all of the other brain areas that you have not affected can compensate for the function that that brain area performs. So if you find that um, you inactivate some part of the brain and then you can't see anymore, you know that that part of the brain is definitely required for vision, and you know that other brain areas can't um, can't uh, make up for the loss. But on the other hand, if you inactivate a brain region and there's no observable behavioral deficit, you can't conclude that the, that brain region is not normally involved in whatever it is, like vision. You can only conclude that other brain areas can compensate. Yeah, so that's uh, I think that's especially true when you're thinking about the more uh, kind of blunt methods of lesion studies where you are kind of scooping out a part of the brain and then maybe you let the animal recover and then you test it on some things because certainly when it has time to recover, there's definitely a lot of opportunity for different brain areas to have plasticity and to like become involved in a task, even if they weren't previously and that kind of thing. Um, when you do short time scale quote unquote lesions that aren't really lesions, either by like 
using chemicals to temporarily inactivate, or in this case, cooling the brain. I think people, uh, there's hope that maybe there's not so much of a chance for compensation. Yeah, compensation on like long time scales, like actually kind of restructuring the brain to compensate. But of course, there are possibilities. Like yeah, kind of like immediate so, compensation. Interestingly, the the Wikipedia article on cortical cooling, at least at the time of, of recording this podcast. I'm sure it's very active and <laughs> changes daily. <laughs> uh, but 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 that but this article does <laughs> touch on the idea that there is an absence of neural compensation when you do cortical cooling, and the paper that talks about the cryo loop, which is a tool uh, developed for cortical cooling, I believe it's this paper that talks about this this notion and highlights that even with cortical cooling experiments. You can have sort of weird compensation effects on short time scales. Yeah, so you can't. It would be hard to claim like there is no neural compensation happening because how can you know? And there's different. Well, kinds so they of actually they, they know that there is a kind of compensation happening in this paper. Um, yeah, so that's uh, the Slumber, Pain, and Horror Journal of Neuroscience Methods paper, 1999. I guess we can. Yeah, so they they again the kind of the main um, purpose of that paper is to introduce this device called the cryo loop. Which is just like the device that's used for cooling a lot these days. Yeah. So like briefly, um, it's kind of a, it's basically like a, a metal tube, small metal tube, piece of tubing, kind of insulated with a little thermometer and you put through it um, some very cold methanol um, and then you put that into the brain wherever you, wherever you like and it cools down some. Yeah, and it's kind of chronically implanted so you can just kind of it's in there, yeah, and then you turn it on when you want that area cooled, and you turn it off when you don't. Yeah. So that's the kind of general mechanism for using this cooled methanol. In any case, yeah, so the point I think you were kind of getting at was in that paper, they so they introduced this method, and um, they go through a whole lot of things, basic kind of, um, basic kind of phenomenology, like how does it affect the brain, how to make one, how to put it into a brain, how long you can leave it in a brain, how does it affect the brain, how does it affect the neural activity, and we'll kind of talk about that. Guess more later in more detail, but they also just mentioned like an example kind of study where they use it use this device to cool a part of cortex the something lumpy blood sylvian whatever the hell cortex um, <laughs> sorry uh, PMS cortex which is something that's some long words that those small letters stand for um, and it's some visual brain area apparently. Um, and so they do an experiment where they either inactivate via cooling that brain area on one or both sides of the brain. They inactivate on one side of the brain, and they find that in some uh, type of visual recognition task, you're very much impaired in recognizing objects presented on the contralateral side, so on the other side of the visual field. So inactivate on the left side of the brain in this area, and you're going to be doing worse um, in some visual task if you presented with objects on the right-hand side of your visual field. Um, the interesting thing is that they then, they inactivate an area but on both sides of the brain. So this, they do it in both hemispheres and they find that, you know, what you might expect from the, from the unilateral study is that you would now have neglect or you'd have like reduced visual recognition capabilities in your whole visual field. But in fact, when you um, inactivate bilaterally, you actually get rid of the you get rid of the deficit. So you recover the ability. You now are you have no deficit no, in no visual neglect. Yeah. No neglect. No 
no neglect in your uh, ability to do this visual recognition task in the whole field. Which suggests something maybe competitive is going on. Or something, yeah, something when like one that. side's still intact, it wins out, but when they're both gone, something else just wins over. Both of them, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point. Like, it's an interesting case in terms of concluding. You know, the brain is very complex, right? And there's all these kind of interrelated thingy, what they called, areas. Um, <laughs> You're coming across as a <laughs> very well-informed neuroscientist. Uh, I try not to be. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it's a like you know, it's an interacting system of all these like, many different parts, and this kind of study uh, kind of shows you that. It's nice, I think, is it, yeah, it highlights this transient compensation, yeah. and it it really gets at this idea that the brain is more complicated than like a whole bunch of independent modules that are interacting and are responsible for like right. clearly separated behaviors. Yes. Yeah, there's you know, there's a reason that people came to think that things were separated. You know, that's not completely ridiculous, but ultimately everything's complicated and connected and interacts with each other to get something done. Mm -hmm. I think it's nice that the the paper that kind of is just putting forth this device actually goes to the trouble of, you know, laying out limitations of its use and that kind of thing. That was a really good thing. Yeah. So that was one of the devices. There's a few other methods that people use. You can just kind of... So uh, we should say that all of these methods involve opening up the skull and sticking stuff on the cortex or in the cortex. Um, so another one is you can use a cooling plate, which I guess is just like a metal, a piece of metal that you make cold and put it on the brain. And that one's, I guess, uh, I think the kind of distance effects are stronger with that. Like maybe you just put that on the top of the cortex and then it can only cool so far into the cortex or, you know, things closer to the plate itself will be colder than things farther away. If you want to cool something deep in the brain, there was uh, something called a cryo tip. And that's kind of like a, a needle that you send cold methanol through and can put it deep into the brain. You can make it insulated so that only the tip is actually cold and then you're only cooling down to some deep brain area. And there was also this other methods paper that attempted to verify the extent to which you could actually cool only certain parts of the brain as opposed to uh, the whole brain. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously brains are different sizes and different animals. And as we mentioned in our last yeah. episode. Um, so in some animals like cats and like large primates, including humans and other primates that are studied, you can cool like a kind of isolated part of the brain so that you can look into the uh, different functions of different brain areas. But in smaller animals, it's hard to control exactly how much gets cooled. And so you might end up cooling more than you intend to, and you're not studying the brain area that you think you are. So controlling kind of the extent of the cooling and making it uniform across uh, the brain region is actually, it seems somewhat difficult. It says, I think the the cryo loop does 10 millimeters cube. That seems rather large, but I think that's what they said. That was like their minimal amount that they could cool. Yeah, I mean, in the in that original paper we were just talking about, I think they say that the extent of deactivation of neurons is supposed to be something like 1.5, 2.5 millimeters from the from the loop. Okay, so maybe it's different. To, Googling, yeah, and then it's also the original paper. Yeah. I mean, so in that in that one about the small animals, they did show things like, for example, 
if you put the thing to zero degrees Celsius above the auditory cortex, you can measure like a four degree reduction of temperature of the cochlea, which is like far away. Yeah, that's supposed to be kind of peripheral. So yeah, maybe for some numbers that would be helpful, like the number you're thrown about is something like when you get to like, you need to get like around 20 degrees Celsius, the temperature of the tissue before you start inactivating neural, acti- neural activity. And for context, it's Celsius, like human body temperature? Or 37. Okay. Yeah. Celsius. Yeah, so I've seen some different papers had different numbers. Some say less than 20. Other ones, when they tested what kind of slowed down neural activity, they had to go to 4 degrees Celsius at certain points, it seems. So I don't, I'm sure that there's a million different things that it depends on. And it depends on how strongly, if you want to shut off activity or just reduce the activity, you know, depending on the scientific goals. Yeah. And then also... We should talk, I guess we can just, I mean, you know, mention the fact that cooling is obviously a sort of very, I guess, well, I'm not sure crude is the right word, but it's kind of general, right? I mean, you're, you're affecting the, the temperature of the whole mass tissue near the near the cooling device. Um, tissue, you know. So it's not, it's not effects. like neuron type specific. Yeah, no. Which is, yeah. <laughs> <Of> course, right. <laughs> I mean, in, in, yeah. Popular these days are sort of very selective methods of deactivation. Like optogenetics, you know, it's something something where you're kind of, you're actually like causing, you know, ionic flow into, across the membrane of neurons specifically, or pharmacological things, you know, you might use some, you might use a drug which specifically, you know, blocks the activity of sodium channel or something, that's these kind of specific things. So this is obviously going to affect just everything, all physical processes are going to different at different temperatures yeah so this is in some ways like a kind of blunt uh yeah yeah. um yeah and it's not just the neurons there's like glial cells that are supportive and the blood vessels themselves and anything that's there is going to be affected by a significant drop in the temperature but they do say um that this technique doesn't appear to cause kind of long-term damage to areas you can cool an area and warm it back up and cool it and warm it back up and you know I think uh, the original paper said it can last like two years in an animal without causing what any significant damage that they can they can assess in the tissue surrounding. I mean that kind of gets us some of the medical stuff which we'll come to later. Yeah yeah the medical uses of this kind of thing you might think well if you cool down a brain area you're ruining it in some way but weirdly it doesn't seem to be the case. Two years and they did nice experiments where they were not just like say, oh, the tissue looks grand, looks fine, they would also periodically do electrophysiological measurements in tissue over the years and find that there was still responsiveness. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit more about what the supposed mechanisms are. Like we're saying, oh, you're like slowing down the neurons, but what does that really mean and, and what kind of part of the neural activity is it targeting? So the Furster paper talks a little bit about this, right? Um, this is a paper that studied this process in cats. And uh, or rather they use this process yeah, to they study use something about neuroscience. Which, which we could talk about as well, but I mean they, they also try to speculate a little bit about yeah. inform speculation about what, yeah. what's actually going on. And it's not clear I mean so so they they, they emphasize that it, it seems to be the the synaptic tra- transmission that is modulated, the amplitude of the postsynaptic events is reduced and there's an increased delay. So the idea is that, and I think that the original 
cryo loop paper supports this interpretation of and what's happening. They also claim that the earlier papers in the 70s using other methods also support that this is the mechanism. Yeah. So yeah, so the basic idea is that you have one cell that is trying to release neurotransmitter and send it on to another cell to make that cell become active and have spikes. And that process of like the neurotransmitter coming out of the first cell and crossing the synapse to come to the second cell and kind of activate it, I guess, is what's most disrupted. But we're not clear if it's really like the release process at the synapse or if it's the sort of activation of the electrical responses on the postsynaptic cell or something about like diffusion in the synaptic cleft. I'm not, I wasn't clear on. Yeah, I don't know. Those that... were, it, it didn't seem like it was given at that level of resolution. Yeah. I mean, this might exist in the literature. Yeah, as far as we've yeah. seen, we haven't yeah. we haven't seen a clarification between those three. But the emphasis seems measures. to be on a disruption or slowing and delaying of synaptic transmission, and the claim is that you know axonal firing, so actual action potentials um, being able to like you know exist and propagate on axons, is intact. Yeah, so that, yeah, the the fact that you can still kind of get the movement of ions that are necessary for, um, like, a, a spike or action potential to occur, I think is part of the support for the idea that what's, when things are stopping, it's not because they can't produce these action potentials, it's because they're not getting input from other cells that is required to, to make them produce it, which would be the synaptic. Yeah, I mean, it also kind of makes some sense in the sense that action potentials are active processes, so they're supported by the consumption of cellular energy. Yeah, but if something were slowed down, you could imagine that it would... I mean, you know, if you cool it enough, it'll not do action potentials either. Yeah, I mean, if if you really went to extremely small temperatures. Okay, so, uh, I mean, the Furster paper was interesting from that standpoint, but it also was some interesting science. Yeah, so this is a paper from 1996... Um, that I think is decently well known in people amongst people who study visual neuroscience, especially at kind of a, a low level. It was pretty impactful because it addressed uh, what was kind of a big question and still is a, a big question. So to summarize the context, I guess uh, Hubel and Wiesel uh, had won the Nobel Prize for their research in neuroscience, but uh, among the things that they did was to figure out for the first time that neurons in the visual cortex of cats, and it turns out other mammals, respond to oriented bars. So like if there's a horizontal line in your field of view, there's a neuron that's in your primary visual cortex that's firing a lot. A bunch of neurons. Yeah. And these cells, people kind of had an idea that the, the inputs to those cells are other cells, which are selective for sort of circular shaped regions of on or off, like darkness or light in your visual field. But the point is they're not selective for For oriented bars. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, and these are cells that are located in the thalamus, which is like a subcortical structure, and they project to the primary visual cortex, which is cortical structure. And so there's a question of like, how does the, how do these cortical cells end up preferring lines when their inputs prefer like dots kind of, yeah, yeah, circles. And the sort of simplest mechanism is that like kind of a row of nearby dots serve as inputs to the, you know, line receptors in early visual cortex. Yeah. So if you line up like three dots in a certain way, you have a line. (laughs) And so maybe that's what's happening. And 
there's other hypotheses. So that's kind of a feed-forward mechanism computationally, which is the idea that you sort of sum or, or aggregate the activity of these multiple inputs, which are distinct. Another kind of notion is that somehow there's like network effects, like recurrent network effects within visual cortex that produce in some collective way, still driven by inputs from the thalamus, but some of there's like a collective mechanism in cortex that produces the tuning or selectivity for uh, these oriented bars or lines. People can, you know, you can build models of that. You can show that that would work. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, the question that this paper is addressing is, are the inputs that come from the subcortical region into this cortical region, are they actually by themselves, like, showing this kind of selectivity to lines? Or do you need the cortical region itself to kind of interact with itself to get this kind of selectivity within a cell? So given what we've talked about so far, it might seem... Uh, like a natural experiment, though still very clever, uh, that you could cool the cortex and see if when the cortex is cooled versus when it's not cooled, you get the same kinds of tuning or selectivity in these cortical neurons. So we don't want to shut off the cortex completely. We want to reduce it and see if basically now, when you check the tuning of these neurons in cortex, if the inputs to these cortical neurons are sufficient for the selectivity or not, basically. Yeah, and so... I kind of do want to turn off, quote-unquote, completely in this one. Well, they need to have it on enough to measure the responses of the cells themselves. Oh, I thought they were measuring EPSPs. So they're actually measuring spiking, right? Because this, I think the reason that they're doing intracellular recording... Is so that they can measure the... So they can measure the... the yeah, I mean, so it's still not completely off. Oh, not completely off in the yeah. sense that the neuron can... Yeah, yeah. The, the neuron needs to receive, like, synaptic transmission yeah, from the thalamic. Yeah. So they've kind of cooled the cortex up to the level where there's no cortical spiking. Or little... No, okay, that's actually not true. Little cor cortical spiking. And then they address this point because deeper layers of the cortex are less cooled and therefore less reduced in their in their activity. So they, they talk about, like, layer 6 neurons. They make, and they, do various, they make various calculations about how juiced they are because they give input to the neurons that they're recording. So, yeah, so it's not... It's, it's not hard... Yeah, it's not a completely clean thing to do, but the general idea is you're shutting off a lot of the stuff that is coming from that area itself, and so you should be able to just look at inputs to that area. Um, and when they do that, they can see that basically the selectivity of these cells to lines is not terribly altered. So their conclusion is that Hubel and Weasel are correct, and the tuning for lines in primary visual cortex comes mainly from the arrangement of the inputs from the thalamus. And again, it doesn't mean that the thalamus, any given thalamic input is orientation selective, it's just that the total thalamic input to a given cortical neuron is in aggregate orientation selective. Yeah. So. There also are caveats um, regarding other brain regions that give input to primary visual cortex, so they cooled primary visual cortex such that it wasn't giving input to itself so much, but there are still other areas of the brain that, you know, theoretically could be providing this orientation input in some way, but like that, we don't believe that to be super likely. So it might be like thalamus sends its input to B2. Or something. Yeah, and then this B2, the secondary 
visual cortex sends it back to primary visual cortex and so that would be kind of like a loop that goes around primary visual cortex uh, originally but could still be responsible for the orientation too. And maybe v2 the orientation was computed in this recurrent way or yeah yeah and they also don't there's no like delay chain oh yeah yeah right. so you would expect that this seems to be like maybe the the heyday of cooling, I don't know, or like kind of right on the cusp of the reemergence of cooling based on the literature that I could see. Because they, when they talk about cooling, they cite a, this paper, this paper we're talking about is from 1996, and when they talk about cooling, they cite a paper from 1970 as though that was like the most recent example of cooling. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that's like a, a pretty well-known uh, use of cooling to get at some interesting question. There have been more recent examples, particularly in uh, zebra finches, which are song, or birds that produce songs, not <laughs> songs that produce birds. Um, but Yeah, it would be cool. Um, but so they produce very stereotyped songs, so they kind of produce the same song over and over. It's part of their mating rituals and that kind of thing. And there's been a lot of study about how can they kind of produce this temporal sequence of sound so perfectly over and over so cooling was used to address this question. I mean, I guess so in this paper, this is Mike Long, Michael Fee, nature thing from 2008, very super famous paper about where they're cooling um, various brain areas, which are these little songbirds. Um, but this is a little bit different, right? Because I guess so far we've mostly talked about the use of cooling to as, totally inactivate things. Yeah, so yeah. the use of cooling as a, as a method of inactivating a brain area, um, but sort of partially reduce the activity as they're going to do here is kind of it's like fairly yeah, creative yeah. direction. So you know the, the advantages that were cited for cooling was that it kind of allows like um, inactivation of a brain area transiently, so you don't have to like lesion it, which in theory can minimize the ability or the, the chance of the brain that other brain areas will compensate for the uh, compensate and kind of recover um, various you know behaviors you might want study um, yeah and so here like you said they're doing something like somewhat different they're kind of cooling more a lot more kind of gently to sort of alter um, the activity in the brain area and I guess the underlying idea or something it's not covert they talk about this explicitly is that they're going to slow down synaptic transmission in a brain area. Yeah, so it's it's kind of different because while other cooling studies were slowing down a brain area, they were like kind of treating it as though it were shut down entirely. And then when you make it colder, it can be like more or less shut down. Whereas this really is trying to slow it down to see like a slowed down behavior. Yeah, so this is kind of, I mean, I think this this, this one's fairly easy to catch catch like the popular imagination of what's going on in the brain. I mean, insofar as you can think of the brain as producing sequences autonomously based on in internal dynamics, the idea would be if you like sort of can crank those dynamics along uh, a bit slower, then you should see the behavior or the output, the generated patterns of behavior, in this case singing, produced in a slowed down fashion. And that's kind of, I mean, this is like, you know, it kind of highlights something as close to mechanistic, you know, at least in like a, a very like flashy way. I mean, it's also good science, right? But in, 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 a, in a flashy way, it, it highlights something that like, I think maybe captures a bit of what people think is 
interesting about, you know, kind of, or, or mechanistic about neuroscience. Yeah. No, yeah, there's something kind of weirdly, almost magically literal about it. Yeah. It's almost it's like, like, let's child pull down the brain. I mean, at least, I mean, not without the science. Like, a child might imagine. Yeah, yeah, just say, like, oh, let's kind of, like, slow cool. down your brain. Maybe yeah. if it's not as hot, yeah. <laughs> it'll be going a bit slower. And then yeah. you'll be slower. It sort of turns out, like... That intuition is somehow kind of right. A bit right, yeah. yeah. If you do it to the right brain area. In yeah. Particular. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of scientific details. They, they, it, it only works... This, this slowing down the production of song works when the right brain region is cooled and not when the wrong brain region is cooled. Yeah. Do you want to give some details about the brain region? Sure. So, I mean, in, in, in birds, when they're producing song, I mean, all of these kind of brain regions are still under active investigation, but there's... Including by you. Uh, uh, yes, I've participated in this. Uh, the, there's sort of two key brain regions uh, that people talk about for, for this context. One is HVC and one is RA. And HVC has very precisely timed... Uh, activity of neurons. So, Timed precisely with respect to the stereotyped song that these birds yeah, produce. So that a given neuron fires precisely relative to a song produced by the bird. And the idea is that those neurons are driving the production of the song, and that's why they are very, you know, related to the song and, and fire at like the same time in the song across repeats of the bird singing the same song. And they project to a different area, R.A., uh, which then RA projects to the musculature of, uh, of the, the vocal musculature. Yeah, so it turns out that HVC, which is the one that people in uh, Michael Fee and, and, and Michael Long's groups uh, study as, as probably the one that's responsible for driving the temporal sequence generation, is the one that, when cooled, slows down things. So, I mean, it's consistent with a uh, sort of broader scientific narrative about the purpose of, of that uh, brain region that is still kind of an active area of investigation for people in uh, both of those groups. I just want to give an aside because it's really funny. In the in this paper, at the in the introduction, um, in the kind of, uh, I guess it's in the abstract, uh, they're talking about these different brain areas and they say, we found that cooling premotor nucleus HVC, and then brackets proper name, slows song speed across all time scales, blah, 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 blah. Whereas cooling downstream motor nucleus or a robust nucleus of the acropallium has no observable effect. And I was kind of Josh and I were wondering earlier why is why is HVC the proper name and not an not an acronym? <laughs> and so it turns out if you go to Wikipedia, HVC was originally called the hyperstriatum ventrale pars caudalis. Later neuroanatomy revealed this name to be incorrect, however, and many researchers referred to it as the high vocal center due to its important function in vocal learning. When the nomenclature of the of the avian brain was officially revised in 2004, these names were officially dropped in order to accord the historical inaccuracies. As there was quote no easy solution for correcting original naming error for the structure, HPC was established as the formal name for the region and no longer stands for anything, <laughs> which is somehow has this kind of weird like dystopian revisionism type of like let's remove the reference. Yeah, like yeah. exactly. It's a, Gorgeous, I love that. 
I mean, and I guess we don't totally know how it works yet, so aside from it having a, a lost Latin name, uh, <laughs> well, it's somewhat appropriate. this is also the same species that has something called Area X. Yeah, so it's just a, as Area X. Yeah, that's know. the name of it. It's a very mysterious creature, yeah, the zebra finches. So, okay, so that was a cool study. And more recently, there's been a follow-up from Mike's group. Wait, did we say exactly what happens? Slow down. Yeah, the, the, the song itself is slowed down when the birds sing it. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like action so yeah. It's like yeah. stretched out. It's not like, it's not just that the syllables are the same length, but they occur more far apart or something. It's yeah. Like literally the whole There's not like gaps in the song. It's just like the whole thing is slowed down like in slow motion. As if we were... So that's a very cool study. And there's been more recent follow-up out of Mike's group uh, where they've been trying a similar kind of cooling in humans while they're producing speech and cooling two different brain regions conventionally associated with the production of speech while humans are speaking. And they see that these two different brain regions, uh, I mean, the short summary, right, is that these two different brain regions that they cool tend to have sort of distinct effects on the properties of the speech. Um, yeah, I mean, this is kind of amazing. So there's more and more studies coming out of humans, right? Like, more and more? Is that true? I guess that's true, right? There, it's becoming kind of relatively common. There are multiple groups around the world that are um, sort of starting to do neuroscience in um, patients of various kinds. So patients who need to have some kind of invasive neurosurgery, say for uh, treating severe forms of epilepsy, or sometimes if people have you know, tumors, have cancer, um, they have to have a surgical surgery to remove tumor. Um, there are some neurosurgeons who now kind of, um, with the consent of patients, obviously, uh, do various kinds of uh, studies where they will maybe record neurons, like actual single unit recordings. Or uh, in this case, I guess this is the first time. Is this the first time cortical cooling has been done in humans? For like science, purely for science scientific, scientific purposes, yeah. probably the first time for scientific purposes. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, right again for context. I mean, these people have their brains already accessible to surgeons uh, because the surgeons need to perform a surgery, and a standard part of this surgery uh, that goes back to like mid-20th century at least is to map the brain regions before you do surgery or as you're doing surgery. So right? that you don't take something that's important. I mean, obviously there's a trade-off between you want to get the tumor or, or the problem spot. Yeah, you out, don't want to pull out But you don't want to pull out something that's like super critical. Walking. Yeah, speaking, or speaking. Speaking being very important. Deep, yeah. very important. Yeah. So it's it's standard to basically use an electrode and stimulate small portions of the brain around and in the area that you might be removing. So you know what it does. You can at least anticipate what the deficits might be and try to avoid certain very critical areas, if at all possible. Um, and there's there's some old literature uh, by you know, Wilder Penfield, who's like a famous neuroanatomist uh, and neurologist from from. Uh, Canada, who wrote a book and, and many papers on mapping the many patients he had that their brains while doing surgery, and he kind of helped to figure out some of the functional separation of some of the brain regions as a consequence of that. Yeah, and so now people who are having these surgeries for whatever reason they need them for, um, kind of scientists who are doing pure research might ask them if they will volunteer to participate in a study like this one where um, kind of additional manipulations will be done or, you know, 
things will be recorded from their brain that are not for the direct purposes of aiding the surgery, but to get some cool data that can help us understand. And these are usually very short experiments relative to what's done for like purely scientific purposes in non-patients. Right. So these tend to be just like, you know, in the spare time that these patients have in between, you know, waiting for something, they can opt into these studies if they so choose. And, you know. Yeah. I guess cooling is a good, it's kind of a nice candidate for this type of thing because it's been fairly well, it's been fairly thoroughly shown that there aren't really any major, you can't, you're not going to cause damage by this kind of relatively mild cooling. Um, yeah. We can get into to that in a bit, but for the epilepsy thing particularly, it's actually the case that sometimes when they're doing these mapping experiments in epilepsy patients, it might kind of induce a seizure, you can imagine, because you're kind of electrobending current to an epileptic brain, um, and cooling can be used for therape therapeutic reasons to kind of prevent the seizure during the mapping. I mean, that's like, yeah, so this is it's sort of almost coincidental. That's like unrelated to the purpose of this scientific yeah, experiment. Yeah. But I mean, it's not totally unrelated. The idea is that it, when you cool the brain, you're sort of deactivating it. So you can use cooling therapeutically to reduce the activity of the whole brain, thereby making it less likely that stimulation when mapping will cause a seizure. And in this study, they in fact want to cool selectively a specific region so that they can see if that region is deactivated, what effects it has on behavior. So the uh, regions that they were looking at were these speech-related regions. So one of them is called Broca's region, which is um, very well-known historically. It's It was identified, I don't know exactly when, but some, it was some time ago. It's been known for a while to be involved in speech, and I think it kind of came about as known to be involved in speech due to accidental lesions in humans originally. So someone would have an accident and it would affect the kind of uh, frontal lobe on the left side and it would make them, the, the person who had that injury couldn't speak, couldn't produce speech. So there was actually a guy called Broca who had patients, who had lesions in this. So it was named after the doctor, not the first. This one was named after the doctor, yeah. So, I mean, that seems like then a pretty kind of obvious place to try cooling if you were interested in speech and uh, what the effects would be on speech. So that's what they did. And um, they also cooled a different area called the uh, precentral gyrus is the location of the area and it's speech motor cortex. So it's kind of like the actual parts of the motor cortex that would be responsible for movement. So part of the idea here is that people knew that these areas were involved in language and say like Broca studies or these patients, they have, you know, severe lesions and therefore very severe sort of deficits. That would kind of, the idea here would be that by cooling these different regions, you know, transiently in awake patients, you can sort of get a more fine, more fine grained grasp on how the different brain areas contribute to different aspects of speech production. Yeah. And it's just a fun thing to try. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the two aspects that they predominantly look at are like the quality or like, you know, sort of articulation quality of the of the speech that's produced or the timing. Again, stretching it out kind of similar to the bird song case. Yeah. Um and so the timing thing they measure just by looking at the actual amount of time people take to say words and the spaces in between words and that kind of thing. For articulation, they actually do a fun thing, which is they 
crowdsource it. They like send it, send audio clips of these people talking to people online and ask them if it sounds normal or not. And this is an interesting thing that scientists are doing generally now is using something like Amazon Mechanical Turk or some other service to have humans kind of help with largely routine and mundane tasks that require kind of multiple raters or scorers or yeah. something like this. Tasks that are for data analysis, but also for psychological experiments themselves, sure, like yeah. asking people to respond to images quickly or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you ever need to make like 10 cents an image, you can <laughs> sign up for Amazon Mechanical Turk and do some experiments. Um, so yeah, so those were the two things that they were measuring, and basically what their conclusions were were that the cooling of Broca's region uh, affected the timing, so it slowed down the speech, whereas the cooling of this motor region affected the articulation, so people couldn't kind of form words crisply if their motor regions for speech were cooled. I feel like this seems like it follows naturally from the bird song. Um, one, but it's a little bit different for me because the birdsong one is so stereotyped. Like I know a lot of people compare the study of birdsong to speech and humans, but it's so stereotyped and it's so, I don't know, like it, it seems like it just kind of starts and then it flows and then it's over. It's just like one pattern that's played where speech feels like it's being produced, like the, the words are being decided on as they're being produced and it just it doesn't seem necessarily sure, yeah. so obvious to so, me that there's one knob for speed and yeah, yeah no, I, I i mean i agree with the, the the point i think the sort of argument that's presented in the paper uh that makes some sense is that these are kind of overtrained speech patterns like counting one two three four oh, yeah. five or the days of the week like monday tuesday wednesday thursday Friday. they were having them do very basic things which obviously makes sense scientifically um to just have them kind of say something that you know that they know. Yeah. And so the idea there would be that's kind of closer to something like like the automation of the way birds sing. It's like you kind of know what the pattern you're going to yeah. say is and you're not thinking about what you're going to say next so much. They should have had people sing. Or <laughs> <laughs> do speech areas, are they involved in singing? <laughs> they could have checked. <laughs> now we'll never know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we can uh, kind of circle back to this idea of cooling being therapeutic that we've touched on a bit throughout. So that aspect of it, the idea that it could possibly help people who are having seizures or who have had brain injury or something like that. I think that's from what I've seen, that was like something that even the Egyptians were trying out at least. So it was like putting people in ice baths or something. Yeah. Something like that. Like, you know, I guess there's an intuition, like, something bad is happening, just stop it. <laughs> Slow it down. <laughs> yeah. And that uh, intuition does turn out to be correct, it seems. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, again, I just, this is a weird subject, I think, because yeah. something, like, very qualitative and high-level yeah. seems to, like, play in nicely with the mechanisms. I mean, we, we, yeah, we, we kind of have a vague intuition that, like, cooling has to do with, like, slowing things down. And this works, like, at a physiological level, broadly, like, slowing down your heart rate and things like this. And it applies also to the sort of computation speed going on in your brain. I don't know how intuitive it seems, though, because in the ranges that we experience temperatures, when you're cold, your heart rate goes up, or you feel like you're, okay. like, shivering. And when you're, you're trying to produce hot, warmth. Yeah, when you're hot, you're like, you know, like, yeah, you yeah, feel Yeah, and we're talking, like, deep yeah. Cold will yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. slow down your physiology and, and ultimately. So I think it's interesting that it kind of feels 
intuitive, even though it's not really what our bodies do in the rain. That's just because we all kind of physics. I mean, maybe it is, but what did the Egyptians know about like thermodynamics? I don't know. Sure. They had some intuitions. It's interesting. Maybe someone has already done research on Egypt, the Egyptian perception of. <laughs> I mean, it probably has something to do with like the fact that things freeze. Like yeah, because then, because yeah, yeah, freezing is like a it's flowing river will turns into a still icy. Thing. Yeah, good point. Did that happen in Egypt? Freezing rivers. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's certainly interesting, right? Because it's like this yeah. weird kind of, I don't know, somehow like ooh. Also, in Egypt, there are either crocodiles or alligators. No, I, I think crocodiles. No. You remember a rhyme. And those are, right, they're cold-blooded, right? So they, are they? Uh, I, be- I Yeah, reptiles are usually, but I don't know how that's, how, like, where are you going with this? <laughs> the point is that when it's hot, they move. And when it's cold, they slid. They slid down. Okay. All right. Okay. Come on. No, like, yeah, that's that, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is their whole physiology slowing down. Yeah, so. yeah no, that's a good one. Um, yeah, so it's been around for a while. But it, and, I, I, I don't know. I just last thing that it's kind of weird to me because because it's so intuitive. Like often science presumes to be divorced from these kind of like very yeah. simple intuitions. Like well, some kind of yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like too indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> the simple intuitions don't usually hold up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, like, with such precision. I mean, it's not fair to hear that they hold up for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a coincidence. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's this kind of nice, like, um, anti-elitist kind of vibe. <laughs> you don't need any fancy medical like, training. I'm going to cool down the brain. Cool down the brain. And then it's like, oh, that, that's probably going to slow it down, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, actually. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> and when you hear about how they do it, so they, the, so using it's like uh, induced hypothermia that they can do in hospitals in response to traumatic brain injury or stroke or something like that, and they they will just like put ice packs and cold blankets on people. <laughs> so I mean, the fancier method is to inject saline that's cooled, kind of like the way you put the cold methanol through the tube into the brain but this is your body's tubes and it's saline um so that's a a way to cool down the body and i guess they were doing it a lot in the 60s but the side effects were kind of outweighing the benefits so it it fell out of favor and then in the 90s there was a resurgence of kind of basic research on animals to see if it could be done in a way that's more helpful than harmful or at least in certain contexts yeah yeah so there's, there's some evidence that in the case of traumatic brain injury, specifically, right? Um, yeah, that's definitely a, like kind of it seems like that's one of the major areas to which it's applied. How does that work? I mean, it is kind of about slowing things down. So I think something that a lot of people don't realize is that when like part of the reason that if you have a serious brain injury, like you have long term effects from it is because your brain does stuff that kind of is, like, supposed to be a helpful response to the injury, but actually is bad. So, like, types of scar tissue forming around where the injury occurred and inflammation and these kinds of things. 
So you can slow the sort of immune response. And yeah, like response. the secondary response is actually a big part of the problem. It also, I think, slows the primary response of like cell death and that kind of thing. Um, but certainly the secondary response as well is something that you want to slow down because then you end up with like permanent this like scarring in your brain that doesn't allow new connections to reform. Which is presumably important to fight infection, but now if yeah, exactly. yeah. you can go to a hospital and get antibiotics, it might be better to not have the scarring and protection. Yeah, so one of one of the reasons they discontinued it in like the seventies was because infections were becoming common when they used this. And also like pneumonia because you're cooling people down. Yeah. So basically because we've kind of come up with better ways to keep all of the side effects at bay, you can try to use this method again. I'm sure it's still complicated and there's still, yeah. Yeah. Seems like there might be some trade-offs involved. Yeah, and there's a lot of literature, a lot of it's done in animals, obviously, where they just kind of, um, I actually had to do like a a class presentation on this way of inducing brain injury and then treating it with hypothermia once in undergrad. And so like they have these like little, they're like little pistons that they just kind of like, it like does like a little hammer hit to the skull of a a rodent. I do find these these experiments are somewhat... Yeah. I don't know why you think it's so different than other kinds. Beating <laughs> them up. <laughs> Rather like, than, like, opening their skull and sticking electrodes Yeah, but, like, I, feel, I like to feel like if I were, like, talking to a rat, I'd be like, look, okay. It's worth I it. I know you're a rat, and you just want to do whatever it is you do, but, like, we're bigger than you, and we don't really give a shit so much about you. And this is going to be really helpful. As opposed to just like, yeah, I'm going to like punch you in the head. No, but why can't all of those arguments still hold? Like, we're bigger than you and this is going to be helpful. Yeah, it's going to be helpful. Yeah. (laughs) I I agree, it's a little bit more, it's blunt. It's blunt, yeah. There's something uh, more more ostensibly brutal. Do you know why? Because it's, I don't know, that's not direct. I was going to say, the rock might be like, why are you still like? hurting each other so much then you won't have but that's like accidents happening <laughs> yeah it's not, it's I don't like know that the like leading cause that causes yeah. some like traumatic brain it's a lot of times it's car accidents and that kind of thing um so yeah so they induce brain injury in some way there's more there's less like direct and gruesome ways because you know concussions sometimes don't actually crack the skull and are still problematic um so they induce it in some way and then they cool the animal down um and yeah, and so then they can measure the things like the the health of the neural tissue in the damaged area and whether these kind of like scars are forming and that kind of thing. It seems like some of the issues are, one, you need to cool pretty quickly after the accident. So like practically speaking, you know, would you have... I guess packs of ice in the ambulance. I mean, they probably do. I don't know. But, I guess yeah, yeah. I guess. I, yeah. Okay, this is a pretty available tool. So maybe it's not. Maybe that's not practically difficult. I mean, but I'm sure there's chemical. Yeah, yeah. But no. But then you have to maintain them at the same time. So they can't be like going up and down. You know. Um, so then you have to maintain them, and um, the rewarming process matters. I think it needs to be like very slow and gradual for the neuroprotective uh, effects to hold. Um, there's also a lot of questions about how long uh, people need to be kind of under in this way. Some of the studies uh, are like a few hours and then other studies are like, I think I saw up to like two weeks they were keeping people hypothermic um, and testing, you know, what the benefits are of those kinds of things. Well, I mean, they had traumatic brain injury. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're so... So they're, like, in a coma or injured or... Well, sometimes they were trying to do it, yeah, when they had already had it, but I don't know how well that works. But, no, other times, like, they did these studies in animals and they were turning out okay, and so there were clinical trials mm-hmm. where when they found, yeah. you know, when people had a traumatic brain injury, they would try... Yeah, that's a little crazy. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's I mean, obviously, yeah, to, yeah, there has to be risk involved, but there is risk involved. Just this is you know quite off topic, but clinical trials. I mean, if if you're at the point where you think there's at least a fifty percent chance that this intervention is going to be better for people than not doing this intervention, mm-hmm. then I don't know. The, like the ethics don't seem that gray. It seems pretty clear that you should run the clinical trial at that point. It's just crazy. I don't like it's like, yeah, okay. I just don't want to be cool. <laughs> well, you probably <laughs> won't I mean, be if, conscious. But yeah, but if, if you were on the side, I mean, I, I think actually sometimes it's worse the other direction. We're like, let's say there's a drug that yeah, it's like, or no, let's say there's a drug that you think might work. But you are in the control group. you're in the control group yeah. for the clinical trial. Then you're missing out on an opportunity. I mean, you might even, you might want to be in the control, in the, sorry, in the intervention uh, side of the... Yeah, actually, you know, if so it's if, kind if of weird, drug, mix. If the drug sure, turns out it? to work, the people who are in the control group should be like given the drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sure, seems yeah. I mean, that might actually happen. I don't you know. know. I'm not sure how the, the details of this work, but another weird thing that I saw in these studies of the cooling um, that they were doing in the animal studies is that they would test the effects of cooling before the brain injury, as though that. I mean, maybe that gives you some understanding of the mechanism, but, like, obviously, practically, you can't cool people's brains before they get in a car accident. Because <laughs> if you could, you should, like, warn them that they're going to get in a car accident. They're going to drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone's... No, well, if, the, if everyone's driving slower as well because their brains are True. slowed down. I don't know if it would translate. You would just have slower responses, but you could still, like, hold the gas pedal as hard, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> It's cool with the car down as well. <laughs> yeah, so um, there seems to be effects potentially of pre-cooling the brain and then injuring it, but I don't know if that's of any use Not to anyone. Unless you want to, like... Yeah, if you wanted to, like, torture someone, <laughs> for example, but you didn't want there to be... <laughs> Long-term... T- <laughs> you know, like, the U.S. government could use this or something. You're going to get deported. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about cooling. Yeah. In all its different forms. Yeah, I mean, there was almost a only loose connection here insofar as all of these things have to do with cooling. But, I mean, there's a there's a tie, which is that cooling does have an effect on the brain. A Slow shit down. A, yeah, a surprisingly intuitive effect on the brain. And uh, so that can be used scientifically and apparently for medical purposes. Kind of for... Not super related reasons, but they're, I mean, they're obviously it's related in some very broad sense, but yeah, yeah at a detail. Chris did a nice job this time of like curating <laughs> Kind of related, but not completely related topics. Yeah, yeah this is how like conferences work. Or, or uh, <laughs> Look at all these interesting connections between these different things. Or, or maybe This American Life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these articles had oh, yeah, a, a bit more, uh, a bit more tethering yeah. to each other. Than this American Life's mini stories do. <laughs> we don't need to take other podcasts down to raise our we'll podcast up. <laughs> anyway, so let's be in. Cool. Yep. See ya.
hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks. Thank you.